appreciate it. Hey, good morning. If you haven't found your way there yet, please make your way to the book of Jude and your copy of God's Word. Uh, feel free to grab one of the Bibles under the row in front of you if you came without one or look it up on your phone. I want to encourage you to follow along as we begin looking at this, uh, one of the most overlooked books in the New Testament. Uh, one of uh, those overlooked books right up there with 2nd and 3rd John. So uh, it takes a whopping three and a half minutes to read this whole letter, uh, shorter than most magazine articles that you find, but it's uh, very uh, significant. It's very a very important letter that we want to study for uh, the next several Sunday mornings. And our portion today is verses 1 and 2, not chapters 1 and 2. There's only one chapter in Jude. And so we uh, don't use the typical designation 1 and 2 refers to the first two verses of the only chapter that we find in Jude. So if you have your Bible open, let's read this passage and, and then we'll begin. Hear the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God, uh, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Even this short greeting is God's authoritative and inerrant word. And let's ask for his help as we study this uh, this morning. Pray with me if you would. Father, thanks for... Uh, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you have given us. Uh, thank you that you have not left us clueless about who you are. But thank you you have told us who you are. Thank you that you have put yourself on display in your son Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives inside us and teaches us your word and helps us understand it. Uh, please send him afresh and help us to understand this letter that Jude wrote. Strengthen us with grace to grasp the truth that's here. And satisfy us, Lord. Fill us uh, with the truth. And quench our spiritual thirst and our hunger. And let us see Jesus lifted up and exalted here. And Savior, we ask all this in your name. Amen. How you begin your letters is extremely important, and especially if you're sending a, a letter, email for, for business. And so uh, experts say that uh, the way you begin your correspondence will set the tone for any future communication you have with that person or that company or that potential boss or whoever it might be. And so they've listed the five best ways that you can begin a letter. The five best way, there we go, uh, five best greetings. And so uh, quite common, uh, probably the most common greeting is very simply, hey Jim, uh, common, and they say very effective in opening your communication. Uh, Hello Jim comes in at number two followed by the good old Dear Jim at number three. Number four, uh, which uh, some of you use in your correspondence, Greetings, Jim. And fifthly, they say, Hello, everyone, when you're addressing a group of people, uh, more than one recipient of your email. The same experts go on to give the five worst ways to begin a letter. And while you might use this greeting with a close friend, uh, they say, hey, it's a very poor way to begin business correspondence or an email. Just, hey, hey, uh, a friendly, you know, note to your friend, you know, certainly, but not, not someone who's a potential employer. Uh, perhaps the worst one you could ever use is this one we often use, to whom it may concern. 
uh, impersonal, shouldn't use that one at all. Uh, the third worst greeting you can use is to misspell anyone's name in any heading. So, hi, Jim, uh, would be a bad way to begin your greeting. Uh, fourth, they say avoid using nicknames uh, in your correspondence unless you've well uh, got a well-established relationship. So, hi, Big Jim is right out. And uh, the fifth worst is the one you often see in your mailbox, dear sir or madam. Uh, not good. Greetings were also important in the ancient world. In fact, there's one in the book of Acts, and we get a glimpse of how official correspondence was addressed. Acts uh, 23, 26 uh, says, Claudius Lysias to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. Uh, perhaps you recall that one, but far more important, uh, these you remember, I'm certain, uh, the greetings that open various letters in the New Testament, uh, letters written by Paul and Peter, John, other men, and Jude. And what sets these greetings apart is that more than just a brief hello, their, con their greetings have rich, rich content to them. And Jude's letter, this short little letter, is no exception. In fact, one New Testament scholar says of these two verses, what distinguishes Jude in particular and New Testament epistles, an epistle is just a word for, it's the Greek word for letter. Uh, contrary to popular opinion, epistle is not uh, a wife of an apostle. Uh, as many think, an epistle, just another word for letter. Uh, Jude in particular, and New Testament epistles in general, from the Greek-Roman letters, in the, is the theological substance of their greetings. Jude did not give a superficial or customary hello. He invested the greeting with the content of the gospel, anticipating the major themes of the letter. So as New Testament letters go, Jude has a great greeting. What makes his greeting so great? What makes his greeting so rich and so profound uh, for you and me this morning? What is it about these two verses that can really feed us and nourish us? That's what we want to look into today. And as we look into this greeting, we see that there are three features of his greeting to us. Uh, there are three features of Jude's greeting that I want to point out to you in verses 1 and 2. Uh, the first feature or uh, element of his greeting is the pedigree. Jude begins by giving his credentials. Uh, he, he, he tells us why he's qualified to write this letter. And he says two things about his pedigree or his credentials. And to begin with, he's a man under authority. Uh, he identifies himself as someone in submission to Jesus Christ. Again, look at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jude, the name, is the English form of the name Judas. There were five men named Judas in the New Testament. So which one is writing this letter? Uh, which Judas or English Jude is, is penning these words? Well, certainly it's not Judas Iscariot, the Judas who betrayed Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, it's a little ironic that this letter written about people who fall away from the Christian faith shares the same name as the most infamous man who ever fell away from the Christian faith, Judas Iscariot. It's not that Judas. Well, scholars have a pretty good idea which Judas or Jude this is because he goes on to say that his brother's James. You remember Jesus had a disciple named James, James and John, sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, uh, they were known as, but that that James was killed by Herod in Acts 12. Uh, after 
the death of that James, James the disciple of Jesus, there's only one other James that rises to prominence in the early church, someone who could be identified by just his first name. And this James was a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Paul talks about him too. He calls him an apostle and also a pillar of the New Testament church in the book of Galatians. That's who this James is. Uh, that's, uh, that's the brother of Jude or this Judas who's writing uh, this letter to us. Uh, he's the brother of James, a leader in the church. And we'll say more about James in just a minute. Look at how Jude describes himself, though. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a remarkable and a very important statement for, for Jude to make. Why is it so remarkable that he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ? It's because this Jude, who's the brother of James, was also the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, we discover this in Matthew 13. Uh, when the people of Jesus' hometown were offended by him, they say, is, this, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? That's our Jude. And uh, the next verse says uh, something about his sisters and are not his, all his sisters with us. Where then did this man get all these things? In other words, this is a homegrown boy. Who does he think he is? Uh, Jesus, who, of course, was Mary's firstborn, conceived by the Holy Spirit. James and Jude, who we just saw mentioned, were also Mary's children, but they were conceived by their father, Joseph. So the Jude writing this letter is the half-brother of Jesus. And that being the case, you, you might expect his letter to begin, Jude, a brother of Jesus Christ and brother of James. But he doesn't begin that way. You might think that he might bring up some manners or habits that Jesus, his older brother, had when they were growing up. Uh, statements that might give weight and authority to his letter. Why, why didn't Jude mention this extraordinary family condition. Why didn't he write Jude the brother of Jesus Christ? Jude didn't bring any of that up for one reason. It didn't matter. It did not matter. For Jude, Jesus Christ was no longer his brother. He was his Lord. Jude doesn't mention this family connection with Christ out of out of reverence for him as his savior, that they grew up under the same roof as irrelevant. What mattered was that now Jesus was his savior and Lord and that Jude served him in submission to his authority. The word servant that he's using, it's a, a term that Paul uses often as, as well. Perhaps you're familiar with the term. It's the term doulos. Uh, sometimes it's translated. In fact, your Bible might say bondservant or slave. Uh, this kind of servant or slave was not the same as African-American slavery in the United States. Uh, the preface to the ESV describes it like this. This is what a doulos or a servant was. Uh, it's often best described, it says, as a bondservant. That is, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve his master for seven years, except for those in Caesar's household in Rome who were contracted for 14 years. When the contract expired, the person was freed, given his wage that had been saved by the master, and officially declared a freedman. That's unlike American slavery in, in the early 1800s. But what was common to both African-American uh, slavery and Roman or Greek slavery was that your life was not your own. You were not free to live 
as you pleased. Your activities were controlled by the whim of your master. And this is how Jude regards himself, a doulos, a servant of Jesus Christ, someone who served at the wishes of his master, someone who lived in submission to his sovereign Lord. We hate this, don't we? We hate this idea of uh, submission to authority. And we resist being told what to do. The, the mere mention of a face mask is enough to make some people go off the rails. But commenting on this phrase, one uh, Bible scholar writes, in preparing this book, I've come to believe that our persistent desire to get out from under the biblical notion of authority, whether it's church or civil or at work or in marriage, is often problematic and in most cases self-destructive. In the case of Jude's opponents, eternally so. Our inclination to play the rebel, to answer to no one, to throw off any and all suggestions of authority is perhaps why, right out of the gate, Jude identifies himself as Jesus' servant. He is modeling Christian maturity for every reader, strikingly by the third word of the English text, that he does so with such matter-of-fact joy ought to be encouraging. Here is a great and comforting truth, he goes on to say, one worth stopping to observe, the people closest to Jesus are happy to call themselves servants. Wow. Talk about a shot across the American psyche, huh? That you claim to follow Jesus Christ should make us happy to call him Lord and call ourselves servants, bond servants. Can I ask if that's how you think of yourself? Towards your Lord, Jesus Christ? Is your knee bowed to him? Are you under his authority and are you submitted to his will? The will of your master is, as the saying goes, your wish is my command. Is his wish your command? And you recall where we find those wishes, right? As my father would say, plain as day. They're spelled out right here. So, would you put yourself in submission to this book? Because they are referred to as the words of Christ. And we're called to obey them as we would if he were here in person. These are living and active words. It's as though he is here. He's speaking through his spirit and so would, would you consider yourself under the authority of this this morning it's not a multiple choice kind of thing you know well I don't think that's for today you know so now true there's some of the sacrifices and ceremonies that aren't for today because Christ fulfilled those but those are fairly clear. So, are you glad to call yourself a servant of Jesus Christ and, and in submission to his authority as he's revealed it to you in his word and, and under him? Because that's what Jude was happy to say. Didn't matter that they grew up under the same roof, and wow, what would that have been like? But it's irrelevant to Jude. He is my Lord and Master. That's what counts. He's my Savior. So that's the first part of his pedigree, but, but he, he goes on. Not only is he a man under authority, he goes on to say that he's a man writing with authority. 
the second thing that qualifies him to write this letter is he's a man with authority. Jude writes this letter with an apostle's stamp of approval. Not only is Jude a servant of Jesus Christ, he goes on to say in the next phrase, and brother of James. Uh, he's a, he's a, a brother of James, the, the, the leader or a leader in the church at Jerusalem. And his association with James, the apostle, is what gives him the authority to write this. That is one of the requirements for a book of the New Testament, that it was written by an apostle or closely connected to an apostle. For example, Mark, the Gospel of Mark was included because Mark was closely connected to the apostle Peter. Luke and Acts are included in the New Testament because Luke was a, a close traveling companion of the apostle Paul. Jude's included because of his connection with James, who Paul names an apostle and pillar of the church. And this connection is important because this is how God gave us the New Testament scriptures. Listen to Ephesians 3 where Paul explains this. When you read this, he's talking about the letter of Ephesians. He says, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This is a qualification for something to be included in the New Testament scriptures, is that apostolic authority uh, that accompanies it. And so Jude is qualified to write this not only because he's under authority, but because he writes with authority through his brother James, the apostle. These are his credentials. This is his pedigree. This is what gives him, uh, qualifies him to write these words, not only in this situation, but to you and me uh, today. Well, that's the first feature. There's another feature of this greeting I want you to note too, and that's the people uh, of his greeting, the audience he's writing to. And in this next phrase, we're going to see that these people have three uh, characteristics. And he begins by saying that they're called. Uh, uh, look at, uh, look at uh, verse, the middle of verse 1, to those who are called. Notice first that he doesn't identify who they are to those. Uh, you know, we, we can think of the difference between this and one of Paul's letters. In Paul's letters, uh, Romans and Philippians and First and Second Timothy, they always begin with a specific church or a name. Uh, he, for example, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi or to Timothy, my true child in the faith. But Jude's letter is not specific to those. And because it's not specific, it's referred to as a general epistle. And this is the case with Hebrews and James and First and Second Peter and First, Second, and Third John. We refer to these letters as general epistles or general letters, whereas Paul's, we just call them Pauline epistles. It's a general epistle then because it, it doesn't address a specific church or location. That doesn't mean he's not thinking about specific people. Look at how he begins verse 3. Beloved, uh, cherished ones. He, he knows these people well. He cares about them. He, he cares about them deeply uh, and calls them dearly loved ones. And, and we know he's also writing with a specific situation in mind because verse 3 and four, he's going to talk about false teachers that have come into the church. And, and that's the situation that's going on among these cherished friends of his. He wrote that this letter to address these people wherever they lived and wherever this problem was. That's who he's writing to. But, but he does get more specific to those, to those generally who are called. What does it mean to be called? And who does the calling? 
One dictionary, one Greek dictionary says that this term refers to someone whose presence has been officially requested, a request to which a refusal is not an option. And you might use the word summoned. Some of us have received a summons in the mail for jury duty. We're always delighted to get those. You know, and, and those are not optional, are they? We're, this definition tells us that we're not talking, uh, what we're talking about is the effectual or effective call of God. As, as the definition states, it's a summons to which a refusal is an, an option. This is a call upon a person to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. You know, many years ago when newspapers were a lot more popular, some of you remember newspapers. Some of you have no idea what a newspaper is, but they were these paper things that came in your driveway every day of the week. And back by the funnies, there was a woman who used to write a column. Her name was Emily Post. And people would write for advice on manners and etiquette. What should I do with this? And she received this letter once. What's the correct procedure when one is invited to the White House but has a previous engagement? Many of you struggle with this. <laughs> she replied, an invitation to dine at the White House is a command, and it automatically cancels any other engagement. And in a similar way, this term called isn't really an invitation at all. It's a summons. It's a command. It's not as though this person or these people are being dragged kicking and screaming against their will. It's not like they're being forced into the faith. Because no one will ever be dragged kicking and screaming into Christ's kingdom. No one will ever be forced to trust Christ against their will. The person God calls to saving faith willingly turns to Jesus as their Savior and Lord because the Holy Spirit in His work of re regeneration has given that person a new heart. And because of this prior work of God's Spirit in someone's heart, he or she is both willing and able to turn from their sin, to rely on the atoning death of, of Christ. Listen to uh, Titus 3.5 describe this work of, of God's Spirit. It says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I underlined the word and because uh, it'd be better to say even. And so we're not talking about two things, washing and renewal. That's one thing, washing of regeneration, even renewal of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who does this regenerating work in us. Uh, uh, being born again. This is what happens to Lydia in the, in the city of Philippi as Paul's preaching there near the river. God's word says, this is Paul, uh, or rather Luke, uh, writing these words, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is the Spirit of God at work in the heart of Lydia, calling her, summoning her to trust in Christ as her Savior and Lord. This is called the effective call of God or the effectual call of God. It's different from the general call of God. What's the general call of God? This is an important distinction. The general call of God it's the free offer of the gospel that we announce to anyone who will listen. We don't know 
who God will summon to saving faith in Jesus, and we don't need to know. What God calls Christians to do is, is explain the good news about Christ's payment for sin to anyone who will listen and call them to turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Now, obviously, the effective call of God, his summons to trust Christ, begins with this general call, the free offer of the good news. But the general call is not a summons like the effective call is. The general call can be turned down and often is, as many of you can bear witness to as you've attempted to share the gospel with someone. The difference between these two is, is illustrated by Charles Spurgeon. I, I like the way he describes it. He says, the general call of the gospel is like the sheet lightning, we call it heat lightning, that we sometimes see on a summer's evening. You've seen those flashes in the summer sky, haven't you? Hopefully you know what heat lightning is. Beautiful, grand, but who ever heard of anything being struck by it? But the special call, or the effective call, is the forked flash from heaven. It strikes somewhere. It is specific, and it is a summons. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, have you been struck by lightning? Has that forked flash hit you where you understood that your sin separated you from God? And that Christ had to die on the cross to pay for your sin. And that you had to turn from that to, to rely on his payment for sin. And nothing, did, did, did that strike you ever? Or are you just one of those, you've seen the sheet lightning time and time again. As long as you've been here, you've heard me up here uh, on a regular basis announcing, uh, uh, talking about the payment of Christ for sin and encouraging you to trust Christ, but it's not made a difference. You've not been struck by lightning yet. What do I do? Pastor Rob, I... I what do I do if I've not been struck like you're talking about? Pray to be struck. God, give me a new heart. Turn me to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Make him precious to me. It's what I want. And if that is your prayer, he will save you. If that's the desire of your heart, he will turn no one with that desire away. Oh, Lord, I want to be saved. I want to trust Christ. No one who desires that will be kept out of the kingdom. Uh, Romans 12, 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If that is what you desire above all things, he will not keep you away but will save you from, from your sins. Well, that's what happened to this group of people that Jude's writing to. They were called. They not only heard the general call, they heard that forked flash. They heard the effectual call, the one they couldn't turn down, the one that drew them to trust in Christ. But he goes on, not only are they called, they have a second characteristic, and that's, that they were beloved. They, the people Jude's writing to are dearly loved by God the Father. Again, this middle phrase, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, you could say, or by God the Father. The preposition can be either in or by. Beloved by God the Father is probably best. This term means to be not just loved, but to be dearly loved, 
to be cherished. It means to be held in great affection, to be an object of, of great pleasure. Believers then are those cherished by God the Father. Believers are those on whom his favor rests. We know from the rest of the New Testament that God the Father set this affection on believers in eternity past, which is always this wall over here. He loved you before the world was made. It shows you to be His own before He created any of this. And look, Christian, this just ought to kind of blow your mind. So, if you're out there thinking, yeah, 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 whatever, then wake up for Pete's sakes. God chose you from eternity past. You were on his mind in eternity past. And you were an object of his desire. And he didn't just love you, he cherished you. His word tells us uh, this. Jeremiah talked about it. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Haven't reached this everlasting yet. So it must be talking about this everlasting over here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 talks about it. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which which He blessed us in the Beloved. And again, chapter 2, Paul says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love which, with which He loved us, made even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And so this love that He's talking about, this beloved, this cherishing, took place in the far past. But that's not all to see about this term. Uh, this term is in the perfect tense, which means it refers to not only that action that was completed way back there, but that it has effects that continue to this day. You might say, I have washed the dishes. And you did it last night, and they're still clean this morning. At least mine were. So Jude is saying, through this perfect tense, through grammar, that God set his affection on you in eternity past, and that that cherishing continues up to right now. And that moment, and that moment, and you see the point? That belovedness keeps on going. And then we know further that when God set his affection on you, that the Father then gave you to God the Son to redeem you, to ransom you, to pay the penalty for, for your sin on the cross. And then even further, in the Father's ordering of events, God, this, uh, God the Spirit gave you a new heart to pay attention to the gospel message and summoned you to trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord when you heard the word preached. But it began back there in eternity past uh, when the Father set His everlasting love uh, on you before the ages began. So the second characteristic of these believers is that they are dearly loved by God the Father, cherished. 
And then one third characteristic I want you to see about these people he's writing to is that they're also kept. The people Jude writes to are guarded by Jesus Christ. We're down to this last phrase in the, in the middle of verse 1 there, or in verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Again, could be kept by Jesus Christ. Preposition can be either way. By is uh, probably better. This guarding, uh, this word kept means to guard preserve, protect, and it's this guarding and protecting uh, function of Jesus, our good shepherd, that's described for us in the Gospel of John. In fact, Jesus says these words in John 6, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus says, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. Who is the all that he has giving me, given me? That phrase, all he has given me, refers to the beloved from the phrase right before this. They're those on whom God has set his love. All that he has given me uh, were given to Christ to keep and to guard and to protect until the last day, that final day when, when Jesus returns. Jesus will lose none of those given to him by the Father. It's amazing. We see that here. In John 6.39, but then this passage we read just a little bit, a little while ago. My sheep hear my voice. Okay, that's not just a random statement. They heard him. That's the effective call of God. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you hear rock-solid security in that phrase? And he goes on to say this, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And oh, by the way, I and the Father are one. This is an eternal kind of keeping that uh, Christ guards and protects those that God has set his love on. He redeemed them, paid for them on the cross, and keeps them in the faith. There's a story from, from Russia. This is uh, years and years ago, back when the czars were still in power, um, and there is a, an account of a park near the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, Russia. There's a beautiful lawn there, and on that lawn there was a bench, and next to that bench there were always two guards. Every three hours the guards were changed, but nobody knew why. And one day this young lieutenant who was put in charge of the palace guard he started wondering about this and, and asked around, and in the end he found the palace historian, this, this old man who went back a few years and asked him if he knew why there were two guards there. The old man said, I do remember during the reign of Peter the Great 200 years ago, the bench got a fresh coat of paint. And the czar was afraid that the ladies might get paint on their dresses, so he ordered one guard to watch the bench. And that order has never been rescinded. Then in 1908, all the guards of the palace were doubled for fear of a revolution. So the bench has had two guards ever since. Christ guarding us is an order that has never been rescinded and never will be rescinded. 
These people were kept by him. You might think to yourself, well, I'm not comfortable with that because it sounds like it eliminates human responsibility. And I assure you, it does not. And just to show you, look down to verse 20 of Jude. Look down in your copy of God's Word. It says in verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep, same word we've been looking at in verse 1. Because Christ keeps us. We are called and exhorted by Jude to keep ourselves in the love of God. And because Christ keeps us, we are able to keep ourselves. We can keep ourselves because we are kept by Christ. So these believers are kept. Oh, these are three amazing characteristics and, and that's why this is no this is no uh, hey guys or hey y'all uh, this is a greeting wow well just one more feature of this greeting that I want to point out to you and that's the prayer and this comes in Jude verse 2 uh, and Jude makes three requests in this prayer look at verse 2 may mercy peace and love be multiplied to you. Uh, his first request is for mercy. It's the attitude of leniency and compassion and pity towards someone who's offended you. Uh, the greatest example, of course, of mercy is in God's compassion and mercy towards sinners like you and me. Uh, I showed you this verse a little while ago in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Why did Jude's audience need an abundance of mercy? Why did they need a compassion multiplied to them? Why did they need pity poured out on them? It's, it's so that they could ask, act mercifully toward false teachers and toward those who'd been ensnared by their teaching. Look down again uh, in the letter to verse 22 where he says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. So he prays that God would pour out his mercy on them in dealing with the false teachers and those who had been led astray uh, by the false teachers. His second request is for peace, uh, absence of conflict, harmony with others. Why would they need that? It's because these false teachers that we'll read about and learn more about next Sunday were stirring up discontent in the church. Verse 16 talks about that. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. They were also causing division in the church, uh, wherever it was. Verse 19 says, it, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. And, and so Jude prays that peace would be multiplied as they deal with the false teachers and the division and conflict they, they've brought with them. And then thirdly, he prays uh, for love, as you can read in verse 2. Why did these people need an abundance of self-sacrificing, other-centered action-oriented love. It's because these false teachers were completely self-centered in, in what they were pursuing. And, and this is described in verse 12. 
These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in autumn, twice dead, uprooted. They need love poured out because of the self-centeredness of these false teachers. So this is the third feature of his greeting, the prayer, and ask God to pour out these things that this location, this church, these believers need so desperately because of these false teachers who have crept in among them. So one scholar says this, Jude prayed that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied because an abundance of these qualities was needed at a stressful time in the church's life. And that is why Jude prays for these things. It's, it's a, as greetings go, it's a great greeting. It is a great and rich and profound greeting. And we've seen three features of this greeting. There is first the pedigree where he names his credentials. He's under authority and he's writing with authority. And then we see this glorious description of the believers he's writing to, uh, called to faith in Christ by the Spirit, beloved by the Father, kept by Christ. Notice the whole Trinity is involved. And then finally this prayer that we've just looked at that God would grant them these things to deal with false teachers among them. Let me close us in prayer as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And God, we pray that you would work these very same things in our hearts and lives as we look into the book of Jude. Father, I pray that the truth of these two verses would, would just uh, amaze us, especially the description of how you have saved us. And let us never lose the awe and wonder of what you've done to secure us for yourself. Father, give us through your Spirit a heart that would submit to Jesus as our Lord to call him our master and treat him as our master. And by your good spirit who lives in us, work these things in and through us. Help us now as we approach uh, the Lord's Supper and strengthen our minds to appreciate anew all the things that it means. Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If the men would come forward who are going to help me.